Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn alongside media executive Grail Hallett, soccer journalist and OTB producer Sam Griswold. Today on OTB, we get caught up with former U.S. men's national team defender and a man who's more recently working uh, for MLS as the senior vice president of competition, operations, and medical. And a man, if you are old enough, will recall, sported quite the kick and mullet in his day. Mr. Jeff Agus will be our guest uh, here on Over the Ball. So a lot to cover, guys, in this age of uh, COVID and relaunching sporting events uh, during a pandemic. A lot of that falls on Jeff's shoulder, so we'll get to talk to him about that. But there's a lot of other things. Obviously, Champions League, some movement uh, with contracts and transfers for national team players. And, uh, and an update on college soccer. Uh, you know, fall sports really just in general – uh, how they're just dragging this out. But uh, before we get going, guys, what are we over today on Over the Ball? Sam? Uh, yeah, I actually, if you guys were okay with it, I thought we could go a different route, um, you know, not start with the negativity. Um, I thought we could each <laughs> point out what we you? our um, biggest stories of the year, biggest story or stories of the year were um, outside of COVID-19, which has okay. obviously dominated the conversation in every you know, realm of life the past six months or whatever it is. So um, I'll start, and mine is you know, more of a cultural one, I guess, but um, as someone who follows the Serie A very closely, my biggest storyline um, is British players playing in Serie A this season. Um, so in the history of the league, there have only been 39 British players. So I would put forward that this season, um, in which we had four, uh, which is a lot by that standard, but I would also argue that there have never been so many high-profile British players in the Premier League with, uh, sorry, in the in Serie A with Ashley Young at Inter, Aaron Ramsey at Juve, and Chris Smalling at Roma. Um, so this is something I followed pretty closely. And I have to say, you know, I've been impressed overall. I've had to eat my words a little bit because I always think English players coming to play in Italy um, are not going to be very good. They're not going to be technical enough. They're just going to be running people over, getting fouls called. <laughs> Um, but overall I thought they did pretty well. Um, especially, uh, Ashley Young and Chris Smalling, uh, Ramsey had a few injury troubles, but you know, when he was playing early on and he was playing well, I feel like that was Juve's best moment of the season when he was playing as an attacking midfielder and he really changed that team for the better. Um, so that was too bad. Uh, Smalling really became a fan favorite in Rome. He had three goals, two assists for a defender, which is quite a bit. Uh, he was named in several team of the year lists and was devastated that he couldn't play with, um, with Roma in the Europa League because his loan ended and there was some controversy there. But uh, it looks like both Inter and Roma are looking uh, to sign him for next season. Uh, and then Ashley Young, too, for Inter, playing in that you know, wing-back role that Conte loves in the 3-5-2, which is not an easy position to play. A lot yeah. is asked of you. Um, he had four goals, four assists, and was one of the more consistent players. So I got to give them their props. And uh, I want to write an article about this too, but I think it's a, that's my cultural takeaway from the, well, I think, I think, I think historically, I think English players have gone to other leagues and tried to impose an English way of playing mm -hmm. uh, on who they're playing for, as opposed to sort of absorbing what, you know, a more possession style or whatever it is, wherever they go and, and play that way. Uh, great story. I think it's interesting. That's your biggest story of the year. Yeah. Uh, who knew it was Syria? Yeah, I mean, now we're going to hear, because you called an audible on us. We're all kind of coming well, up with I'm that big story. I'm trying to link, I'm trying to link Syria, you know, the greater sort of interest. You are, you are the Pied Piper for Syria. I, you really are. And now I'm going to ask Grail what, are you ready what his favorite me? story is, but I got to say, 
Is it have to do with Chelsea? I am no, and it doesn't have to oh! do with no, and it does not have to do with Italian players playing in the EPL. So I'm not <laughs> gonna, go. I'm going to deviate from Seth. Honestly, my biggest story is the players' reaction and embrace of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, the three of us have been beating the drum of racism in soccer for a long time, and and the impact it has on us as former players and just individuals and i've got to tell you the way the players in the epl stepped up yeah and and they and by the way they are the ones who drove this it wasn't the coaches it wasn't the owners it wasn't it was the players banding together and saying hey guess what we're going to make a statement this means something to us and i'm just i'm really encouraged because at the beginning of the year you know we talked a lot on otb about the incidents that were going on at various matches and it was going on also over in Italy, obviously, but, um, but yeah, I'm just, uh, to me, that was really heartening to see the players get behind that so much. And I, and it gives me, uh, it, it gives me optimism. You know, you, you see that the black lives matter movement and that's overseas. That's the influence yeah. that America has on the rest of the world, which we sort of, uh, we sometimes deny and don't even realize. But uh, and then Megan Rapinoe with um, you know LGBTQ uh, rights, uh, she spoke out as well. This is where people say players should just play on certain networks in certain places. You know what? Yeah, I mean, shut you, up and dribble. Shut up and dribble. Say. And these are yeah. these are human beings who are being asked to do certain things, but not being asked to give their opinion or talk. It just seems odd. Now, I remember um, David uh, Zirin from um, when we were over at Sirius XM FC Grail. He used to say, "Oh yeah." Uh, people say sports and politics don't mix unless of course you want sports and politics to mix when you're asking for a city or a state to give you a, a, a break tax break or ask for investment from the community. So they're always asking for money when it's, you know, and playing politics when it's to their own best interests as owners. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's nice to see the players have actually taken some, um, some control and power because after all it is up to them. It's almost like the voters. It's up to the voters and the players are the voters in this well, yes, and, uh, and, and fans look up to players and fans look at players' behavior. So if the right. players, you, you can influence the fans' position on, this, on these things by taking a stand. Look, and we have said this on the show for a couple of years now, and we've had Desmond Armstrong on, and we've talked about this, this issue quite a bit, where I'd always said, all the players need to walk off. All the players need to yes. do this. Not, not the player of color who's, who's uh, called a, a horrible name and, and he gets offended. You should all be offended. And that seems to be what has happened. So I think that's a good, good choice for a big story, more of a global one than... Yes. You know. So my story is just uh, seems simple after this one. Just the Liverpool story. I think it was a, a huge season. Uh, I don't know if it'll be recreated for a while, because um, they went on a heck of a run. It seems like with COVID and then their loss in the Champions League sort of diminished it towards the end after the, after the break. But I don't think people really gave it its due as to what a, big, uh, what a big story. I mean, the amount of games they won and how far ahead they were uh, was, was pretty impressive. Do you think it'll happen again, guys, in the next 10 years? Uh, it's going to happen with one of the top four clubs because they're going to keep spending. I mean, I think Man City would be the most likely to be able to maybe eclipse them just because they're going to be able to go out and get the talent. And as yeah. long as Pep stays there. Pep, Pep taking some heat though um, with champions league, uh, you know, came out defensively on that team that keeps everybody on their back heels. I, I don't, he's his, own, any he's his own worst enemy sometimes. I mean, the guy is really smart when it comes to coaching, but sometimes when he's in that, you know, laboratory, 
you know, mixing the beakers and stuff like that. He comes yeah. up with these things that are just, it's like you, you leave both the Silvas on the bench, you leave Foden on the bench and you leave Mares on the bench. You've already don't have Aguero because he's injured. Yeah. I'm like, what are you just put the best players on the pitch, please. That's yeah. my, my advice. It seems like simple. So guys, what is, uh, what are your thoughts on champions league? Uh, these, this past round of games. Well, it's a lot. It's a lot to break down. I can't remember how many games we've had. And there were a lot since the, our last show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think the biggest story is obviously Bayern crushing Barcelona eight yeah. two. I mean, City going out to Lyon was a pretty was pretty shocking. Um, and yeah, I think the fact that we end up with PSG and Bayern in the final is sort of a normal final, considering mm-hmm. all the upsets that were out there for a, a second. Yeah. But, um, I think it'll be a good final. Um, I think PSG, after a sort of slow start against Atalanta, I think it took them about really the first half to kind of get back in gear. Um, but they obviously looked good against Leipzig, winning 3-0. And, I mean, Bayern have just been a steamroller for the last, you know, three, four months, however long they've been playing. Like 28 games in a row, I think, or something? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. Bayern are, you know, in my opinion, rightly considered the favorite and pretty heavily uh, in the final. Yeah. But um, I, think, I think it could be a good game. And often, you know, these finals – don't really live up to the billing so that yeah that and I, can, I, I think you could argue sam and uh i know Flinny just talked at length about liverpool but i honestly at this stage of the game i think Bayern's the best team in the world mm. i mean liverpool had an amazing season that somewhat ran out of gas towards the end and Bayern has just gotten stronger and stronger and stronger if Bayern played liverpool right now i think Bayern wins Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I think that the only difference is the strength of schedule during the domestic, you know, league where I think, you know, Bayern sort of cruises. Sam, you've talked about this before, domestic league competition, how it sharpens you for sort of Champions League, Europa stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think day to day, game to game, what Liverpool did was was pretty impressive. Now, uh, the best team in the world right now. Yeah, I think you're right. Braille. I think it is. It is Bayern. And you know, here we're talking about, um, I mean, beat up beat up Barcelona it was like watching that Brazil game down in in Brazil against Germany yeah that was just that was just didn't quite believe it I mean I mean the level of humiliation and embarrassment for a club of that magnitude was incredible I mean I I I figured that Bayern going in was probably a two-goal favorite that's the way I looked at it I I never thought Barca was going to beat them but on the other hand I never ever expected 8-2 and by the way they scored nine of the goals because one was an own goal so Barca really only scored one goal and they were just beaten in every aspect of the game if we broke down the game and looked at like five different parts of it Bayern beat them every way you could possibly beat them and on top of which Ter Stegen had one of the worst matches I've ever seen him have mm-hmm. from a passing standpoint his passes were being intercepted and stuff so it's just like some of those shots of Messi like towards the end of the game I mean, he looked. I don't even know how to how to explain his expression, other than just like blank. Well, I'm, let me ask you guys. I'm yeah. curious your take on this because, it, like you're saying, Grail, it seemed very clear Barcelona as a team had basically given up at halftime. I mean, they were already down four-one. I mean, I don't know what side of the debate I fall on this, but did you not think it was excessive for Bayern to keep scoring uh. and bringing on Coutinho, adding two goals in the last? You know, 10 well, well, first this, of all, this isn't regular champions like where you play yeah. two legs, you know. But first of all, I don't, you know, they're bringing on Coutinho because they want to give him some minutes. Okay, mm-hmm. so that that was that was like, hey, we want to keep our guys sharp. 
-hmm. going into the next game. So I didn't, you know, I've, I've coached kids for a long time. And I remember having opposing coaches like get in my face about running up the score. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with kids, it's even more difficult to kind of like turn the faucet off and say to a 10 year old kid, stop playing. You know, these other coaches would say, hey, Grail, you should just have them play keep away. I go, let me tell you what I've played my whole life. That's more insulting to kids to have a, a, a team play keep away than just to keep, you know, scoring and whatever. And, I, and, and at that level, honestly, Sam, I first of all, I don't think of Bayern as a team that would run up to score and try to humiliate somebody. Mm-hmm. I just think they keep playing. Yeah. You know, you keep playing and what happens happens. Mm-hmm. And it just happened that they, 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 they created a lot of really good chances and took a lot of them. Yeah. So, it also seems to be a, a German thing. They seem to just be kind of relentless and professional till the very end where, you know, maybe yeah. in other places they take their foot off the gas. You know, it'd bit. be interesting if you interviewed somebody like a Messi after the match, I think that would be the least of his, his concerns, whether or not he thought they ran up to the score. His bigger concern would be what the hell were we doing? What, what was our manager doing as this was unfolding? Like, why didn't we have any countermeasures Mm-hmm. to it what's wrong with the front office i mean i'm sure messi was probably thinking all of this during it but he's a professional i just don't think he's like he, he wouldn't go out there and try to injure thomas muller or something like that because they were scoring more goals i mean again your job as the opposing team is to stop them mm. yeah yeah um Lewandowski, well, I, to, to, with Messi, it's interesting because the poor guy, you know, he goes to Argentina, have not had much success there when, when, when playing with them. Uh, they don't seem to know how to play with him like they do at Barcelona. But uh, now he, do, he doesn't even have any respite when he, when he plays for Barcelona. And, I mean, this is the thing where uh, I think, Sam, you're, you're, you're talking about maybe perhaps cultural differences where, mm-hmm. you know, uh, German consistency and – you know, effort and uh, the formations and their infrastructure kind of keeps things together. You know, you watch that happen with Brazil, some of the greatest players in the world. All of a sudden, they're playing against Germany in the World Cup. They just, they fold. Yeah. And it, it's yeah, really terrible to see. They gave they up. Did. I, I, I didn't get the sense that Barca Very, very Brazilian. Up. Very Brazilian. I, I, I just got the sense that Barca just had no answers. I mean, it wasn't like yeah. they just shut down and I, said, like, gave up the ball and didn't do anything. I, I guess just, I'm just, yeah, I guess I'm just surprised it's not a bigger story. Because here in the U.S., it seems like in every sport, every season, there's some debate about someone running up the score and sportsmanship. and. Yeah. National team. No, there's a lot of oversensitivity here too, Sam. Remember, we're the culture of everybody gets a trophy. So if, if a score yeah. isn't three, two, it's like somehow, you know, running up the score, if you just actually perform really well. And again, I think at that level, it's just the embarrassment. They're not mad at, at Bayern Munich. They're personally embarrassed that they allowed that to happen. Right. So speaking of trophies, uh, Lewandowski, Ballon d'Or winner? Well, they got rid of it. I mean, they remember yeah. they can't they, they basically said we're not we're not I mean I know he, that this, he this, should this, have. I mean Sam should have won it. Yeah. Sam, I mean, you and I, you know, we talked about this. I mean, he was clearly the most consistent player all year. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's a shame he didn't even win the golden boot, which went to Ciro Immobile, which, you know, I'd like it going to an Italian, but I can't say yeah. he was more deserving than Lewandowski this year. And, and you could have given, I mean, I don't know what the, the whole principle of not being able to give it because it, they played the schedule. They played the full schedule. I know it was a weird time, but 
they played other than League One and League Two in France. Everybody played their schedules to their conclusion, correct? Well, I think if you're going to play the Champions League and Europa Leagues, you know, where a team having their season canceled halfway through has a much bigger impact on how they perform, then you can certainly give the Ballon d'Or. But it's just my opinion. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So, so, so you mentioned Europa League there. Um, yeah. Got a guy who's had a second second life is Lukaku, though. Um, didn't I guess didn't quite do it at Manchester United. I, I didn't I do it know. at Wasn't all. Wasn't dynamic at enough. All. Did not uh, do it at all. But he's uh, he's doing well in in, uh, in Serie A. Yeah, he's had a fantastic year in Serie A. Um, this sort of builds on my earlier point because Lukaku, uh, Christian Eriksen, and Alexis Sanchez all came over from England too to play uh, for Inter this season to varying degrees of success. Lukaku's been phenomenal. Eriksen's kind of had his issues, um, although he only came in the winter. And mm-hmm. Sanchez, since he got over his injuries, um, has played pretty well too, um, much better than I think he was for Man U. But um, yeah, Lukaku has scored in 10 straight Europa League games to get Inter to the final where they'll play Sevilla tomorrow or today, if you're listening. Um, has 33 goals now in the season. Wow. Um, and a, a lot has been made in Italy, which is very... Um, Italian. Yeah. <laughs> very Italian. Yeah, that would be. I was going to say, sorry, very superstitious culture, especially when it comes to soccer. Um, a lot of comparisons being made to the original Ronaldo, who 20 years ago led Inter to the UEFA Cup uh, championship and scored 34 goals that year. So Lukaku's just one behind him uh, and can get there, obviously, if he scores in the final. So, yeah. Should be I, was, I was happy for Conte, honestly, as a former Chelsea manager. I, I felt like he didn't get treated that well. Um, as he went out the door and I'm, I'm happy for him because, you know, and and Sam, you could speak to this much more in terms of the history of Inter, but they've had some lean years, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so he's really, he's done a good job of kind of resurrecting them. Yeah. I mean, he's had a lot of help financially. Uh, he's gotten a lot of investment and a lot of players that he wanted. Um, I think considering the the strength of their team, they, they should be in this final. Um, and I think they should, have finished where they did in the league, which was second place. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think Sevilla are going to be tough because they're kind of the the kings of the Europa League. I think they've won five or something. And yeah, they do they, so well. They overachieve yeah. in the Europa League. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I don't. I think you're going to see a very kind of classic Italian game out of Conte. Uh, Inter, you know, in the Europa League, have played a much more defensive counterattacking style, which tends to be the way Italian teams go. You know, when you get the the single elimination games, but it's been it's been effective. Yeah, one one just quick observation, guys, in the games, just because this comes on the heels of us talking to the three old goalies last week, last week, and we were talking about catching the ball, and it was just amazing as I was watching a lot of these games unfold, the number of times keepers could not hold on to the ball. I mean, right. in these late rounds of Champions League. I just saw some really bad goalkeeping. Also, bad bad passing out of the bat. I, I think the goalkeepers last week were talking about how the ball has changed, so perhaps you don't risk it by holding on to it. You just keep parrying the ball. So let's talk domestically a little bit, guys, before we get uh, before we get Jeff Vegas on. Um, so this fall season, it just it's like a slow. Uh, what do they call it? Where the dominoes fall? Like you know where they're going. You know where it's headed. Yet they seem to have been fighting us all along. For like college. For college, yeah, they, you know, they've canceled. So it's like conferences are canceling, but not as a whole. It's, it's almost like our, our national response to what's going on with the COVID thing. It's been all like localized and not national. So uh, are they just putting off the inevitable here to just cancel everything? 
I mean, if it feels like it, um, the NCAA board of governors are going to meet tomorrow, Friday, August 21st to confirm the cancellations that have already been, you know, Mm -hmm. put forward and consider moving the fall championships to the spring. This is, uh, from soccer America. I'm reading this. Yeah. Uh, you know, division two and division three have already canceled the fall sports championships and will not hold them in the spring. Uh, so the D one council has to vote and kind of figure it out, but it, I don't know. It's not looking good. I don't, you know, I don't, I think pushing it back to the spring at this point is fine. Everyone knows it's going to happen. You're not giving up on the season altogether. See no to do it. Yeah. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that. Plus we've talked to Sasha uh, Sarowski about maybe the split season. Maybe this is a a little prelude to it. A little, little. Yeah. I think, you know, the colleges, you know, like you saw that uh, UNC at Chapel Hill brought all the kids back and then there were like four clusters and now all the kids have been sent home, but they're going to try to play football. I'm like, wait, wait a second. Let me get this straight. You've got all the kids going home except the football players who are going to be staying in the dorms with, I guess, international students that can't go home. And maybe, I guess, 20% of the entire student body will still be there. Notre Notre Dame sent their players, their their students home. Are they going to play as well? Again, I think a lot of these big-time football programs – are just trying to hold on for dear life because of the revenue and they don't want to lose the revenue. And, um, but to Sam's point, I just think it's inevitable. I mean, it's whether or not it happens a week from now or two weeks from now, three weeks, whatever it is. Yeah. Just put us out of our misery folks. So, so some other stories I I was interested in, um, Southampton apparently looking to uh, sign Weston McKinney from Schalke. Do you have any uh, news on this, Sam? Uh, well, I know it's, I think, pretty far along in terms of negotiations. It would be over 20 million pounds, the deal. Uh, and, yeah, I know that McKenney has said his goal was to move to kind of a mid-tier English League team. After yeah. And uh, I don't know too much about Southampton, but um, – Good team. Yeah. And Grail, what do, you, what do you make of his chances there? Yeah, no, I mean, I think Southampton's a really good, you know, like you were saying, middle-tier team, which, you know, I mean, obviously they don't have the resources that the top six clubs – but they, they, they really had good form after Project Restart. You know, they knocked off Man City. Um, I'm just blanking. I hate to admit this, but I'm blanking on their German manager. Uh, and I'll come up with it. Maybe somebody can uh, do a quick research there, so I'm not totally embarrassed. Anyway, really good manager, good system, uh, had, a really, uh, had, a, had a big-time striker, 20 goals this year. No, they're good. They're, they're, that's, that would be a really good club for him to go to. Go to. Good stuff. So, and then um, Tyler Adams. I was looking at this. Uh, the goal he scored, which was a, it's a goal in the Champions League, but a little deflection kind of scuffed it. I a think. little, this a is, little uh, deflection. Hey, they all count though, right? <laughs> oh they God. they all count. But uh, he's the third American to score in the Champions League knockout round. Sam, I'm surprised that's not one of your questions of uh, who the other two. Well, play. I did a Tyler Adams question last week, so I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to double up. The Tyler Adams fan club. Um, who, are the other, who are the other two players? Is it Pulisic and Dempsey? Maybe? Uh, I think Demarcus Beasley scored a oh, goal. Bees had uh, one. And I believe Pulisic is the other one, but I, I'm not sure. I didn't, I didn't look into that. Um, yeah. I did find out that he would have been the first ever American uh, Champions League finalist had Leipzig advanced to the final and he gotten in the game. But there's uh, some controversy there, though, right, as to who is the first? Well, yeah, I mean, so – yeah, it sort of depends how you look on it, uh, look at it, because if you guys remember Nevin uh, Subotic, um, yeah. played in the Champions League final with Borussia Dortmund um, a while back. You know, his family is Serbian, was born there, but moved to the U.S. at a young age. 
so you know there there's yeah. i don't want to get into this. we we lost him i mean he would have been a great center back for the u.s men's national team but you know because he grew up in florida right around uh in florida by the by the nick Bolateri camp his sister was a tennis uh she was at that tennis school and he was just kicking the ball around and they pulled him in and look at it big boy uh skill and then he plays for serbia so there goes that uh <laughs> plus that player rossi who was from new jersey who went and played for oh yeah Roma? Did he play for Roma? Uh, uh, no, he didn't play for Roma. He played for Fiorentina for a while. Yeah, and he had injuries and stuff, but boy, it would have been nice to have him um, strike. They, they go back to the motherland, I guess, uh, a lot of these guys. So, um, all right, guys, anything else before we get to Jeff Vegas? Yeah, no, I was just going to say that the final, I think, is a dream for the powers that be at Champions League because you have two super clubs facing off, you know, two heavyweights going at it and, and stars galore to promote, which is terrific for champions league. So I would think a really, I I, I would think a really good rating with my, with Bayern and and PSG. Yeah. PSG is certainly, uh, you know, Neymar, Neymar, you know, they've got some real superstars in that team too. So I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a very attractive final. I'm just, I'm, but I'm going out on a limb. I'm going to say three-one Bayern. That's my prediction. Well, I think that's a good bet right there. I think I would, uh, I would go with that one as well. Sam, what do you got? Yeah, yeah I think Bayern have to be the favorite. Maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe two goals is a bit much, but and Neuer, and by the way, guys, Neuer looks really good again. I mean, he looks like he's back to his old form. So yeah. I just want to say I couldn't find the you know exact information on this, but I'm pretty certain Alfonso Davies will be the first Canadian to play in a Champions League final. Nice. Uh, hoping to confirm that. But. Man, man, he came out of nowhere, huh? And just like, boom, to the top of the pile. It's fantastic. All right, let's take a break now. And uh, when we come back, we'll be talking to uh, – the senior vice president of competition operations and medical guys. The first question we should ask is like, what is your job, man? That sounds like a lot of stuff (laughs) with Mr. Jeff Vegas. We'll be right back on OTB. Over the ball is brought to you by soccer America. Go to socceramerica.com slash join and sign up for the soccer America pro membership. It's just $4 and 90 cents a month or $49 a year. And by ticket IQ, the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets. Go to TicketIQ.com, and when it asks for the promo code, punch in OTB10 for $10 off of your purchase. Can't lose. All right, joining us now and over the ball, a returning champion here on OTB. It's been a little while, though. He is uh, well, he's a former U.S. men's national team back. Loved watching this guy play for years. He was a longtime stalwart on the team. Uh, he is now Senior Vice President of Competition, Operations, and Medical at MLS. Uh, Jeff Vegas. Jeff, welcome back to OTB. How are you, man? I'm great. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be back. Wow. Uh, so explain your title, especially operations. <laughs> what are you doing? Like breast implants and things? What kind of, <laughs> what kind of, what kind of operations are you doing? Just, no, just <laughs> honestly, explain your title. I think they're more, more like heart, uh, heart implants, uh, based on some <laughs> of the COVID issues that we're having to deal with. Oh my Look, goodness. Uh, there's two, two questions people typically ask. The first is, what's your title? And the second is, what does that mean? Right. Uh, so you're right in queue in terms of, of that. Uh, essentially, uh, we're responsible for everything that happens on the field from a competitive aspect, operational aspect, and, uh, and now, interestingly, a medical aspect. And we're just coming right. out of uh, the MLS's back tournament in, in Orlando, a successful uh, run with a couple bumps uh, in between. Um, and, and we're getting back into our return to market strategy with uh, the return to the regular season. Uh, that's, uh, that's happening this evening. So we're, we're very, uh, very excited about uh, the upcoming matches, although there's a 
lot of issues to manage. I tell you, Jeff, we were talking about it on the show last week. We got to give MLS their props because you're the first league out of the gate here domestically, really. And um, yeah, there were a few hiccups, but, and I was worried in the beginning, but you guys pulled it off. You actually made it happen. And then I think as far as your title is concerned, um, medical, did they add that? You know, you'd already signed your contract. You're like, what are you adding another category during <laughs> the COVID? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Always, uh, you know, left back probably knows the most about uh, all, the, all types of medical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're playing close to the trainer out there. That's he's close to. <laughs> I've had enough injuries, I think, to qualify. But thankfully, we have a, a great uh, chief medical officer and Dr. Margot Patukian, uh, who's out of Princeton, and she does a fantastic job. I think we've got a, just an absolutely great department. Natalie Akula. Mm -hmm. Kyle Sherry, Joe Atkinson, uh, John Gallucci also, who's, you may remember the name, who's uh, yeah. one of uh, one, our assistant to the chief medical officer. So we've got a great group of people. It makes my life really easy. But uh, look, I will say as we went through uh, that uh, experience in Orlando, we, we did have some teetering at the edge of the cliff a couple times, but uh, very happy that we made it through and, and made it through really successfully. And yeah. had a Guinness Book of World Record come out of it as well. What's that biggest ball of twine or something? What do you have? <laughs> yes. All the guys were bo I'm so bored. <laughs> Most games in one place, which I didn't know existed. Oh, wow. wow. Interesting. Let, let me ask you this. Did you get, uh, were you guys in contact with other professional leagues? I mean, because obviously you must have learned something from the Premier League and, and uh, you know, Serie A sort of rolling out what they were doing right, what they were doing wrong. Did any of the leagues domestically ask you uh, how you guys are operating? Yeah, we. it's a really good question. We uh, really started this, uh, like every other league, trying to ask a lot of questions, try to understand what the issues were. We reached out to the Premier League. We reached out to the Bundesliga. We reached out to the NBA, NHL, MLB, just to get a sense of what other leagues are doing and, and, and how, how they're doing it. Um, and I think we've all been working very collaboratively. I know uh, Margo actually sits on a, a weekly call with the other uh, league's uh, CMOs, the other U.S. sports league's CMOs, and they have discussions about very much the same issues that we're facing. So I think the, the strength is in numbers here, and we're trying to all solve this thing together. Yeah, I think you guys just serve uh, a lot of credit, man. You've, uh, you've taken the beach, as they say. Grail, you had a question? Yeah. Hey, Jeff. Great to have you with us. Um, I was, uh, I was actually frustrated that you guys didn't get more credit, to be honest with you. I felt like, uh, as a big soccer fan, MLS somehow got lost in the shuffle. But, it, but in any case, what, what kind of learnings can you take from the success now that you're outside the bubble and you're in the real dangerous world? Were there any learnings that you could take and actually apply them to what you're doing moving forward? Yeah, that's a really good question, Grayley. Look, I, I think where we sit today and where we sat, you know, on June 22nd, when we really first landed at Normandy, to, to Kevin's point, um, in Orlando, was uh, really we had, we had a theoretical model of what we thought would work, uh, but it, it was very different from the practical, everyday uh, things we found out. And they were as simple as, you know, what a movement should be for an isolation room and uh, the fact that, that these guys who were in isolation, you know, uh, their mental health was as important as their physical health and having to manage through that mental health piece was really important. Uh, uh, a very funny story, actually, we had uh, 
uh, one of the players who was in isolation, which uh, we wound up giving, you know, uh, Xboxes, and we were, we, were, we were trying to make sure that they were, their minds were uh, somewhere else and not on, on COVID. But one of the uh, persons in isolation loved it so much. We gave them so much they didn't want to leave on the on their uh, on, the, on their departure day, and, and yeah. we had trouble getting him to leave the isolation room. So uh, we did learn a lot, uh, and, and there were a lot of learnings, and we're in a much better place today than when we started. And I think that's true of really any league going through this. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about the guys down there because you know we've all gone through preseason where you're isolated anyway. You know, you sort of, uh, you know, hold up in your hotel room with your with your legs up between sessions and you sort of cut off in the outside world in the best of, of situations. So I couldn't imagine the isolation that these guys were feeling, um, you know, during the COVID, the COVID problem. Sam, you had a question for uh, uh, Jeff? Yeah, Jeff, I'm curious at this point now how much of the protocol going forward comes from you guys at the league office and how much is up to the clubs on their own to, you know, regulate their stadiums, dictate health and safety measures? Yeah, that's a great question, Sam. We we um, we really rely on our clubs, and and more so than ever today. Um, the, the 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 difference between what we did in Orlando was the league essentially controlled uh, most, if not all, of the testing and the medical protocols. And essentially, what we've done is handed over all of those to the clubs and said, you know, you go forth and uh, manage this process with some oversight from the league. So. Um, it's a collaborative effort. We've established what those protocols are, uh, what the policies are. Uh, our expectation is the clubs will abide by those and, 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 and ensure that they meet this, the minimum standards and requirements we have set forth. Uh, but I'll say we're really relying on our club's medical staffs, their chief medical officers, their chief soccer officers, their chief business officers. Um, we're, we're working, you know, shoulder to shoulder on this with our clubs to make sure that we're going to be successful. This is what we should have done on a national level, because it seems like MLS has these federal rules that they come up with and then they dictate them to the to the clubs, which are like the states and, you know, states rights. And they, they kind of rule it, you know, because each uh, city would probably be different and implementing things differently. But uh, with a threshold that you guys have come up with and the things that you learned about in the uh, in the bubble. Let me ask you this. Um, you know, you have a 130, what, four, I think, caps um, as a U.S. Men's National Team member. MLS has developed uh, lots of players that, that are moving into the national team. How do you think uh, the league has done with pushing players uh, towards the national team and developing better players? It's sort of a, an obvious question, but I'd just like to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question because, I mean, if we're going to be successful, we have to have our national teams be successful in both Canada and the United States. And um, it's incredibly important that we develop players and we develop players for our national teams. And I think that's a byproduct of, of the success of the league. And as we get more successful and we produce better players, um, you know, there's a transfer market as well that we're very uh, concerned with. So uh, those players who, who do, who are transferred like Tyler Adams uh, going across, um, you know, uh, you know, Afonso Davies, who you saw yesterday, with Byron and, and has turned into a fantastic left back at, at Byron. Um, you know, th those types of are, uh, stories are success stories. And, and those are things that we need to continue to happen on a, on a year by year basis. So we're very ingrained and very entrenched in making sure player development is a, is a real priority for the league.
Look, you know, I, I want to ask this quickly because you were, you know, you read the game really well um, from an outside back position. And I think, I mean, imagine having the speed of Alfonso Davis, you know, as oh. an outside back, you know, goose. <laughs> it, it just would have been so much fun. What I have noticed about players with incredible speed is they have a tendency to take risks and chances that defenders generally can't take uh, because they can recover quickly. Um, here's a kid who was, you know, sort of a, plays like a forward. Um, now he's in the back. How do you think his transition's coming along? And uh, what do you think are the strong parts of his game, which are somewhat obvious, and then uh, some of the weaknesses that he has to work on as an outside back? Yeah, look, look he, he is incredibly gifted uh, uh, athletically, but let's not take away the soccer piece either. Uh, he is technically very, very good. Mm -hmm. I think what I think the next phase of, of his development will be the understanding of you know, his positioning and the tactical role he'll play with Bayern. The one advantage of a left back and especially a left back playing some of the best players in the world is you're really not defending a lot <laughs> because you've got the ball. And if you're playing with Bayern, that's different from, from playing at a middle uh, tier or, or bottom, uh, bottom tier team who you, where, where you're always defending. And so he's going to have the luxury of, of having more possession of the ball and, and being able to get forward. And, you know, Alfonso, uh, was a player who came up and was really a more, a more attacking minded player. And you can see those gifts as he goes forward. You can see that understanding of what to do in the attacking third. Um, I think he's really come a long way in understanding the defensive principles in terms of positioning and cover and support. Um, but that'll still be something that you learn. And that's, that's really a lot of experience. And as he, as he gets more games under his belt, especially uh, high level games like Champions League games, look, he'll be, he'll be tested and, and that's where he'll learn. Okay, Grail? Yeah, Jeff, let's just expand that out a little bit. Uh, since you played the position, and back in the day, it was always more of a kind of a stay-at-home position where you're responsible for tackling and then, you know, distributing the ball. How have you, how have you seen those wingback positions change? And um, is how, how will the U.S. kind of adapt to that in terms of the national, men's national team? Because it just feels like, if you don't have those wing backs that can play that style, you're going to be, kind of be left in the dust. Yeah, that's a good question. So the teams that I, I was on, especially the national teams, having to play against, um, you know, Mexico's and Italy's and, and the, the, the powers that be, you were always defending. Uh, so there was not a lot of chance to go forward. The way uh, the modern game is now with the Gagan pressing and the, and the, and the pressing in the, in the attacking or the, uh, the attacking third, it's a very different tactical philosophy. And so if you can, if you can do that successfully, you limit the amount of defending uh, that you have to do and you increase the amount of, of possession. And so um, there's advantages and disadvantages to, to, to both of those things. But uh, I, I think the, the future of, of the of the men's U.S. national team is to is to really develop their their outside backs, to develop the way they attack, have a real common and core understanding of what the principles of both attack, defending, transition are going to be. I think that's something Greg is still trying to implement within the team, and I know especially in this time with the lack of friendly games, the lack of camps, that's going to be a, a real priority for him as he gets those players into camp. You know, it's interesting. You look at the outside backs and the difference they made, like, let's say, in a Liverpool team, it, it basically keeps the other team on their heels the entire time. You build out of the back, you attack, you know, wide like that keeps everybody on the front foot. Um, and then you look at something like Man City, where they, they sort of came out on a defensive sort of posture and 
and struggled a little bit in this last uh, Champions League match. Did uh, what? T- tell me, Jeff, because you're you know you're an aficionado of the game. When did you see this change from the back? Where because look, because when I played right after the War of eighteen twelve. <laughs> we, we used to have a sweeper. Remember, like it was a sweeper, and I remember it was uh, you know Desmond was moving from sweeper position to outside back, and it was like a big, big change. Um, but you had that like sort of Lothar Mateus thing, and you know, everything built out of the back of Beckenbauer model. Maybe when did this change? Uh, you know, because look, as an outside back, you're you're facing, you keep things in front of you. It, it makes sense, but no one ever had thought of it really before to come out of the back that way. Yeah, look, change doesn't happen quickly, um, and there's a lot of opposition to change, but the one constant is change. Um, and I think a lot of these strategies uh, come out of, of people that came before you, and you sort of stand on the shoulders of people who came before, and you take things uh, from other people. Um, you know, the cliche that great artists steal, I think, is appropriate here. Um, you know, coaches, uh, people like Pep and, uh, and Klopp uh, took these concepts and philosophies and magnified them and really uh i think put them in place and had the courage and the and the fearlessness to implement them in in matches i think we're seeing probably the end of sort of the tiki-taka era with barcelona uh some changes in in the way that the spanish league is working and so look i I think we're going to see some differences in time in terms of how different coaches react to this pressing, um, and I'm I'm actually excited to see what's next uh, because it's it, it's interesting to see to understand what what different coaches think about and how they go about uh, implementing those strategies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know that, those are good points, Jeff. Because you look at Barcelona, they seem to have you know run out of gas so with the tiki taka stuff. And what, one thing I can say about this sort of uh, you know attacking out of the back, it's very exciting soccer to watch. Yeah, I mean Barcelona, uh, you know. Uh, was something of a passanaccio. So they would, would pass the ball to extremes. And it got to a point where people wondered, you know, what, what's, what's the use of it? And, and why, you know, why are you passing so much? Ultimately, the, the goal is to, to score goals. And people don't come to games. People don't watch games to see defending, unfortunately, as a former defender. They see attacking, attacking soccer and they want to see goals. They want to see uh, creative plays and they want to see great attacking players. Uh, so my, you know, my mistake was being a defender, I guess. Nah, no mistake in good defense, man. Uh, Sam, you got a question for Jeff? Yeah. Shifting a little bit, Jeff, um, and touching on something you mentioned earlier about the communication you guys had between uh, other sports leagues, whether in Europe or here domestically. Um, I'm wondering how normal that is sort of in peacetime as it were, how much communication do you have with these leagues in Europe? And as you're in charge of, you know, competition for MLS, what sort of models are you trying to follow? If you are trying to follow any, things like that. Yeah, we, we, uh, um, we are, we rely on a lot of the other leagues and we are in constant communication and have uh, reached out to a number of different stakeholders um, around the world, including IFAB and FIFA, who are huge supporters of of major league soccer. Uh, We were, one of the first leagues, we were the first league actually who implemented video review in a competitive match in 2016. We've been a proponent of technology and change and are very progressive in that nature to try to improve the game. And we've been working uh, with other leagues. Other leagues have called us on on issues with video review. And so again, we try to work really, really collaboratively. Uh, Additionally, every year for the past couple years, uh, we've held essentially a 
a summit for some of the top leagues in the world, Premier League, um, the Bundesliga, the, Prem, uh, the La Liga come in, Liga Mex come in, and we have a summit for a, a, a day and a half to two days and talk through all of the issues that um, you know, we have or, or, or we're facing in the modern day. And it's been incredibly useful uh, to have that two-day summit just to sit down, break bread sometimes. And what's interesting is what we, we find is that while we have different magnitudes of this, we all have very similar problems in terms of what, what the issues are from you know, player transfers uh, to competitive issues, uh, to competitive balance. Um, so look, we all kind of share a lot of the same pain points. And so it's great to be able to to reach out to somebody and ask them, you know, what do you think about this? How do you guys see this? And what do you do when X happens or Y happens? You know, this is interesting, Jeff, because uh, like I said on the show last week, we were talking about how MLS was sort of the first to the beach. And um, so one thing that's happened recently was since you're the first league that's had some players, uh, some fans in the stands, you had an incident with uh, Reggie Cannon um, in in Dallas. Um, talk a little bit about that, because I, I said to the guys last week, I said, this is only an extension of the fact that they were the first, MLS is first out of the gate. If it's going to happen in NBA games, it's going to happen in NFL games. It's, uh, it's going to happen in baseball. And so a lot of these athletes are going to take a knee. It's, it's, uh, it's just the reality right now. And it seems like uh, it almost might be like a non-smoking, you know, no smoking. Like if people you know, sort of complained about it at first, and then it became the norm. So um, what are your thoughts on that one? The yeah, incident? I think, the, the, look, I, I, this obviously started with Kaepernick a number of years ago. And so this right. isn't uh, something that, that uh, MLS started. And I think Colin Kaepernick and Megan Rapino and, and, and various others who started yeah. this movement um, are, are, are the pioneers of this. I think where we are today and where Reggie Cannon um, uh, Justin Morrow heads up uh, the coalition uh, in MLS. Um, I see this as a this is an incredible positive in terms of understanding uh, the issues that are that are confronting society. Uh, I think there's a conflation. Uh, our fans may conflate the fact that this is about patriotism when it's actually about something completely different. Um, so I understand the the issues, uh, but you know MLS and and the league uh, absolutely 100% support the Black Lives Matter campaign and, and those types of issues. Um, we we support equality, uh, you know, non-discrimination, anti-harassment. A lot of those things are things that are are really uh, paramount for the league, and so. Um, it was an unfortunate incident, obviously, in Dallas, um, but we obviously support our player. Yeah, I'd say it's just growing pains, Jeff, where you're going to go through this, and this is just part of the package, and this is how change begins. It's never uh, never quite easy. Grail? Well, yeah, just to follow up on that, Jeff, um, I know you guys have a great reputation for kind of communicating with the players and coming to consensus. You chose not to use the anthem in, in the bubble. And then when you emerged from the bubble, you decided to go to the anthem. Is there any thought moving forward that just to kind of squelch the whole issue, maybe you stop playing the anthem at the games, which obviously will lead to some backlash from people that want you to play the anthem, but it just kind of takes away that, that ability for people to make it a bigger issue. Yeah, look, I think it's something that we're trying to understand and get our, our arms around. It's, it's new to us. 
Um, we understand what the anthem means to a lot of people. Um, you know, the, one of the main reasons we didn't have the anthem in Orlando is we didn't have fans. In Dallas, we did, um, and in venues where we do, um, it's likely we will continue with the anthem in venues that we don't. Uh, we may not play the anthem. I, I don't think it's a, a function of patriotism. It's a function of, of whether we have fans in the, in the stands and, and whether that, um, that ritual c continues. But that's an ongoing discussion, I know, with, uh, with the commissioner. I know that he's very sensitive to that, uh, as well as our senior executives and, and our, our club uh, chief soccer officers, club business officers, and, and, and importantly, our players. You know, it's interesting. I think soccer, more than any of the other sports, is, uh, you know, look, the United States is a land of immigrants. And one thing, uh, this that's why I think soccer is uniquely American in a way, because we're a land of immigrants. It's a game with immigrants. All of us as players, we played with guys from, you know, from Haiti and, you know, African countries and South America, Central America. We, you kind of get a feel for the world out there when you play soccer. And it seems interesting to me that you have so many players from so many different countries that it seems odd if it's not a national team game to be playing the, the national anthem. Um, so, and I think it's only since, well, I think after World War II, they started to do it, um, the national anthem. So it hasn't always been a been a part of it. Guys, you have another question for Jeff? I'm going to get back to the U.S. men's national team if you don't. Go ahead. You got it? All right, so, so look, Jeff, you were on the, the national team for a long time. I got to know a lot of you guys. Uh, there was a solid base there. You guys, uh, man, you gave blood, sweat, and tears whenever you represented the country. And you were there for a long time. You know, you guys, you and Harksy and uh, Marcelo and all these guys. What's the difference now? It seems like the player pool is bigger, but it doesn't seem like I can wrap my head around the 11 core players or the eight core guys. It seems uh, it's expanded and I don't know. A lot of guys walk on, I'm like, wow, where's he from? What, you know, it's, you get a lot of surprises as well. Yeah, look, it's a good question. I think the, the one, the, the, the benefit of, of, of MLS, not only for the US, but for Canada, for Costa Rica, for many of the uh, CONCACAF, uh, teams is we've deepened the pool just by increasing the competition. So I think uh, from a U.S. men's national team standpoint, this is the deepest we've we've been. In saying that, I would still put you know our 2002 team up against almost any team that yeah. that there that there has been uh, to date. I think the I think there's still quality, and you have to have quality in your starting 11, 18, 25. Uh, what have you? So you can't you can't get around quality. I think the one thing, and, and look, I'm not inside the the national team now, so I can't speak to to what what's happening um, behind the door, behind the curtain. But I will say, in terms of the team that I was on, we always fought for one another. We always stood shoulder to shoulder. Uh, there was there was a pride in what we what we did and how we did it, um, and we we didn't take anything uh, for granted. We we respected the opponent, but not so much that. Um, it impacted the way we played. And we always thought going into a game, we had an opportunity to win no matter who we were playing. Uh, um, as I said, I, I, don't, I don't know what it, what's going on within the national team. I can't speak to how, uh, Greg's um, philosophy yeah. or, or what happens behind the scenes. Um, but I do know that on the teams I was on, and, and that includes uh, the teams that Greg was on, 
um, that we all stood for something and we all represented the country and we are all, we are all incredibly proud of, of representing the U.S. It's funny you talk about the competition. It's increased the competition within our, our region because, you know, a lot of players are playing MLS from Costa Rica and then we, gotta, we have to qualify against them. So it's a sort of a double-edged sword. But, you know, it seems like you guys, uh, you probably played for how many national team coaches? Goose, four, maybe? Deborah, uh, Bruce, you know. It was um, Lothar, Gantler, Bora, uh, I don't know if I count Kowalski, <laughs> he was sort of interim, Samson, Bruce, wow. I think that's six. That's more than I so thought six. even. Yeah, that's a lot. Well, you know, this is my point. Uh, there was a consistency even, and the consistency was effort, like you talked about, the sort of blood, sweat, and tears that you have to, you know, put out there. Um, yeah. Didn't matter. Didn't matter who the coach was. So there was a that you could build on that block there. So um, everyone's asked for a more attacking possession style game uh, from Greg. It's it's a lot easier on paper than it actually is to perform. Uh, you know, as players, and it seems like the team is trying to do that now. Um, what do you think about our qualifying chances this year? Well, look, we're compared to the rest of the uh, confederations. This is probably, and on one hand, one of the easiest confederations to qualify, given that we have three and a half slots. Right. And um, one of the hardest, because what you, what people don't realize is that going into places like El Salvador, going into Costa Rica, uh, Nicaragua, some of the Caribbean islands, Mexico, that is not easy uh, to. <laughs> to manage and those games on those fields with those crowds, um, you know, it is not about playing uh, good soccer or attractive soccer. It's about the results and getting out of there with sort of your lives. Um, so sometimes in the CONCACAF region, you may not need to play well. You just need to get, have to get a result. And that's different than, you know, wanting to put on an attractive attack minded uh, type of game. And in some cases you play a very different style in CONCACAF than you would uh, when you go to the World Cup and you have a completely different group with completely different environments, completely different fields. So, you know, the, uh, you know, in 2002, when we qualified in, uh, through the CONCACAF, we had one way we played and we went to the World Cup and um, had the different uh, teams, Portugal, um, you know, South Korea and Poland. We played in a completely different way or, in a, or a, you know, different philosophy. And so, you have to be willing to be, uh, you have to be willing to adapt and understand what those different are. That's a good point. And I think um, some of this qualification will be without fans. So I know for me as a player, getting hit in the head with a battery and a bag of urine wasn't always my favorite <laughs> thing to, to, to do. So, hey, Grail, what do you got for Jeff? Yeah, so uh, Jeff, Polisic is clearly the foundational piece on the team, both from just a playing standpoint and a marketing standpoint. And I'm just curious what you think about how Berhalter maximizes that because, you know, when he's playing for Chelsea and he's playing with guys like Giroux and very talented players, that obviously elevates his own play. So how can you, how do you take that and, and somehow, you know, uh, recreate it on the U.S. men's national team? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the same, it's, it's the messy question, you know, yeah. how do you recreate Barcelona with Argentina? And, and in, in a lot of ways, you can't. You, you, you have to figure out other ways to maximize the player. And I'd say Christian is obviously one of our, if not our best player uh, currently. 
but it's not just up to Christian. It's up to all of the other players and the, the, the strategy and the tactics that are implemented to not only maximize one or two players, but maximize the entire team, put the team in a position that they can succeed. Uh, so whether that means playing with three in the back, four in the back, attacking, pressing, um, it's, it's not about the, the style as it is having players that suit a style. So if you're trying to implement a philosophy or a strategy without having those players, you're going to fail miserably. And mm -hmm. you, what you're really want to, what your starting point is, is what type of players you have and what, what type of formation or envir environment or, or approach uh, you want to use within that strategy. So I think Christian can be used, um, you know, really well. And I think he's an attack minded player, but he's going to rely on other players. He's not going to be the person who, uh, is scoring all of the goals and cre creating all the goals. He's going to be depending on, co on combining with other people, having players help defend, uh, transitioning. I mean, he's very good at running at people. And so I think uh, what 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 would be beneficial for players like Christian is to have players around him and having a, a tactical approach that um, would be beneficial to a transition or be beneficial uh, to a quick style. Um, but again, I think that that's really down to the players that you have available and the, the formation and tactical principles that you're using. Yeah, well, you see Christian does well out wide, slashes inside, and then he plays sort of in the middle sometimes with the national team. But it seems like, Jeff, this is the – we have more players playing playing uh, steady and playing overseas uh, than we've ever had. And it seems like – to me, it seems like we always had that one special player, like a Tab or a Claudia or a Dempsey – uh, and then you had a, you know, a solid uh, base around them uh, that could support them and their creativity. Uh, now you seem to have a, a lot more players to choose from. So I'm hoping that it's a, that it's a positive thing. I just want to see them all come together. Um, because Weston McKinney, they don't know where they're going to play him. Tyler Adams, they're not sure about him. So it'll be nice to see these guys come into camp and uh, start to gel. How long does that take for you, like, in a camp? How, like, how odd is it coming from wherever you're coming from to come to the national team, you're asked to do something different. Uh, do players get overwhelmed or is it something like, okay, this is what I'm doing and, and uh, we all have our assignment and here we go? No, I, look, they, these, these are the best players um, in our country um, and that represent our country and they're players that can adapt. And so uh, changing that is not, uh, what we're, changing how they currently play is not that big of a shift, although there is a shift and they have to understand it. And it takes a little bit of time to, to adapt to it, um, but it's about consistency more so than the tactical approach. The benefit I think we had uh, with the national teams I played on is that we had a very clear idea of what uh, the approach was and what our individual role was, and that typically we had the same people playing in the same places. So if I look at our back four uh, throughout qualifi qualification, it rarely changed or there was very minor changes. If I look at the tactical approach, we typically with Bruce played in a 4-4-2 and we, right. we very rarely changed that approach and we very rarely changed the possession style and tactical approach um, to, to, to those games. So I think a common understanding of what you're going to do, how you're going to do it and your role and having the same people um, in that in those roles is, is really critical to the success. And I'm not look this this isn't uh, um, you know this isn't a high level discussion. These are very basic principles, but they're very difficult to do, um, and they're very difficult based on just the personnel that you have available, where players may not be coming in now because 
of potential COVID issues, quarantine issues, medical issues, concerns about their, their family. You, you're in a completely different place now when you accept a call up um, than, than where you were pre, uh, pre-COVID. So those are things I think all the players have to consider not just on the men's national team, U.S. national team, but every national team. Yeah, they're, they're, guys are making more money now, too, and they're sort of on their own earlier. You know, you mentioned uh, Canada. You know, when I was playing, Jeff, in college, many would argue that Canada was actually better suited, uh, had more players than the United States did at that time. And they sort of went off, off track for a while. Uh, I think it's really important that I think when Canada does well and there's a good competition there with our friends to the north, uh, it's good for the game. Is there a, a, you know, it seems like Canada, the country itself, has really sort of started to make some, some gains moving forward to try and support their national teams and the domestic league as well. There's no question there. I just uh, thought I'd get your thoughts on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I, I, I think not only Canada, but like we were talking about all the other countries, uh, you know, with having three uh, teams in Canada, in Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal, obviously, um, it's started, I think, the growth in Canada. Um, People who grow up in Canada now have an option of of not only playing hockey, but playing soccer. And there's a huge uh, base uh, for for youth soccer in in those areas, as well as other areas in the the provinces of Canada. So um, it's still early days in Canada, but I think their player development strategy, some of the the ways they develop uh, players in Canada, I think is only going to benefit those, not only those three teams, but their entire national team. And I think the Canadian Soccer Association is working hand in hand to, to try to um, encourage that growth and continue the, the growth of their national team. Yeah, we hope they build some indoor facilities like maybe Iceland did. But I tell you what, you know, Jeff, you played a season of indoor soccer, man. That, that beats you, your body up pretty badly. Uh, I, I think you were still playing outdoors at the time, but you went indoor and you were like, wait a minute, this is, this is crazy. <laughs> you know, playing in the boards in a hockey arena, it's like it'll shorten your legs uh, by a couple <laughs> of years. Yeah, I'll tell you, my first, my first year as a professional was indoor soccer. It was right after college. And thankfully, you know, at that point, everybody was trying to scrape through. And I, I know you remember those days where you were just trying to get through from one season to another, going indoor to outdoor, yeah, uh, to whatever you could do to try to kind of scrape through. I got very lucky, uh, played on an incredible team with the Dallas Sidekicks. Uh, Tattoo, I, I played with Tattoo, if you remember the name. Yeah, uh, sure. Just an incredible organization, incredible uh, team. We went to the final in my first year. And I had a blast playing it, but it, by no means is that uh, the same as outdoor soccer. They are very, very different uh, right. sports. And the thing is, you come out as a college student and you're like, what? Th- you know, dr- dump it into the corner, third line changes, all that stuff. It's all <laughs> new to you. So, and, you know, we were talking about you before you got on, uh, but a four-time All-American at the University of Virginia. I think you're the only one, aren't you? I think so. I, I haven't kept up, but... Uh, well, yeah, Claudia left I early. I think... Um, uh, Kyle left early as well, Kyle Martino, but uh, something to be proud of, dude. It's uh, good yeah. stuff, it's rare. Yeah, no, look, I, I had a great time at University of Virginia. And again, you know, my college coach in Bruce Arena became my professional coach and ultimately my national team coach. So it speaks about the environment that we were all in at, at UVA and um, just the, I mean, the number of players that were developed, not just Claudio and Tony and Parks, you know, myself, but all of the other players that, that, that came oh, absolutely. to uh, Richard Williams, John Major, Chris Kelderman. I mean, just a ton of other players 
uh, came into the league. Also. Uh, watching, watching you guys play was like watching a professional team. It was really great to see. All right. Well, Jeff Vegas, uh, we appreciate it so much. Uh, you're joining us on Over the Ball. He's a senior vice president of competition, operations, and medical and snow plowing, too. We're going to put snow plowing on there. <laughs> All right, pal. Thanks for joining thanks, us on yeah. OTB. Hey, remember to tweet us at Over the Ball, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and write a review. In fact, make us one of your favorites. It makes a big difference. Oh, always great to catch up with Jeff Agus. A, a good guy, smart guy. Um, always knew that UVA, about Jeff. UVA, UVA four-time All-American. I mean, he's, I know. No, he's no intellectual slouch. But, you know, I, I think certain players, you watch them play. Like, I know guys that I played with that could figure stuff out before I could tactically on a field. You know, I know uh, Nick O'Shea is coaching. Mike Noonan was another one oh, at Clemson. Yeah. Like, Mike Very would be able to player. tell me. He'd be able to tell me what was happening and I could try to execute, but I couldn't read it myself. And you realize that the guys like that have, have gone on to coach. They have that sort of mind, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, and I think Jeff's one of those players. He's very, mm -hmm. very thoughtful. So it was, uh, it was great to get caught up with him and what a year he's had a lot thrown on his plate and uh, good for MLS. Yeah. Good very for good. MLS. Really happy for that. And I hope the rest of the season goes well. Yeah. I thought what he said about the national team was really interesting and yeah. it should be taken to heart that, you know, the, the amount of like different hats you have to wear as a team and the different identities you have to be able to embody and, uh, you know, playing in El Salvador versus playing at the World Cup. And uh, yeah, I hope that hope that message gets across. And in a certain sense, those guys were, you know, Pied Pipers, prophets for the game. And they felt like wherever they went, whatever they did, they were a representation of the country, the game itself, uh, you know, trying to get the word out there. And I think sometimes the players now they kind of take it for granted. A lot of the sweat equity that went well, into Well, his resiliency getting... too, right? The last guy cut for the 94 squad, came back, made it in 98, didn't play a minute, and then came back in 2002 and got his time. I mean, it, really impressive in terms of just kind of sticking to it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, all right. So what else guys, before we get going, I wanted to touch, uh, quickly, uh, because this was my favorite player in the, uh, in the women's world cup was Rose Lavelle. So she was mm -hmm. traded from Washington spirit to, uh, the rain, um, with the understanding that she'll sign for man city. Who's been following this story. Yeah. I, I, I again, it's, uh, it's a curious thing. I, I must be a contractual reason that you get traded and then you get signed by that but but again um great for rose lavelle not great for the nwsl yeah if they lose a player you know to go over and play in europe but uh for the man city women's team it's it's a great pickup and she's playing with um oh, who's her teammate she's joining it she's joining um somebody else sam, sam mewis exactly sam mewis is going yeah. over there as well because she left uh north carolina the courage so Anyway, um, but she was my she was my player of the of the of the World Cup. I mean, the stuff she created on and off the ball was was pretty. Well, amazing. as we know, because we were we are players and we can evaluate them. You know, for Rapino to be named the best player of the tournament to me was no. just ludicrous. Because yeah. I don't think Megan Rapinoe's in the top ten of the best women players in the world. To be honest with you, but that's. My, right, my right. opinion. I think it, it was other issues that, yeah. uh, you know, her, her social stances perhaps uh, elevated uh, her in the voting because people were aware of who she was. So, Sam, what else you got? Uh, okay, so we were talking last week a little bit about Europa, Champions League, trying to reformat everything, single elimination, whatever. So I put together, a, you know, a concrete proposal that I believe takes care of the big issues facing UEFA. And okay. uh, I'll throw it at you guys. So, 
here are, in my opinion, the three biggest issues facing them for the tournament, um, you know, for, for the European competition. One is that the big clubs want to form a Super League. And what mm -hmm. that essentially means is that they want guaranteed access to the Champions League, not tied to their league performance. Two is that the Europa League is basically seen as a burden and irrelevant. Um, and three, they want to start a third tier European competition to try to, you know, level out the playing field financially and get some of these smaller teams playing European games. Right. I would also add a fourth point that I don't think they really care about, but that, and that's that the domestic cups essentially mean nothing anymore. So right. to address this, I want to just have one tournament. I don't want Champions League. I don't want Europa League. I don't want this third tier thing. I just want one big tournament. And you want the Sam Cup? This is how it, you can call it that. The uh, Sam Cup. This is how I would organize it. Okay, so you start with the Champions League, which is the Griswold. The tier <laughs> yeah. one, the same way the teams are picked now, that's fine. You take the 32 teams, they play the group stage in the same way, okay? okay. But no one is eliminated. That is purely for seeding in the knockout tournament that comes to follow, okay? Tier two, if you want to call it the Europa League, which currently has 48 teams, expand that to 64. That includes more of the third tier teams and allows basically any big club in Europe a backdoor entrance into the tournament. There's no, you know, Juventus is never going to finish lower than sixth in Serie A, let's be honest. Um, so they play a regular group stage with 54 teams, uh, 64 teams, excuse me, but only the top two teams advance to the knockout tournament. So then you're left with 64 teams. The teams that were in the Champions League in the beginning are the top 32 seeds, seeded according to how they did in the group stage. The 32 teams that come from the Europa League are the bottom 32 seeds, 33 to 64 seated, depending on how they are. Wow, okay. Stages. A lot of math here. I, I've gotten Sam, sharpening my number two pencil. Sam, Sam, do you remember you're dealing with Flinny here? From there <laughs> exactly. on in, we have 64 teams. We have like a. Head, I've been headbutted too many times. <laughs> we have an actual bracket. You know, you can print it out like, just like you do for March Madness. Um, I would say you just play one game from here on in. Wow. But I don't think that would get anywhere because teams want to play more games so that's fine if you want to do two legs until the final you know, they want a home and away but i love the single single game elimination yeah but i just think this like you know the small teams are never going to get that far but even if they get through a round and then get to play Bayern munich they make a ton of money you know it's a meaningful game i, I don't know that's that's my i like this i like this okay. sam you're, you're putting your thinking that's... cap on um but i tell you like grail it always comes back to you which is money um, yeah it's well, these teams yeah, and I, money to, yeah, I love Sam's idea about Champions League, you know, single elimination, but they want to play as many games as possible. Maybe you right. could start doing it in the quarterfinals, but round of 16, they're going to want to keep having oh, That's true. A little yeah. alteration on your plan there, Sam. So yeah. what, a, what a good team we have here on Over the Ball. Everybody kind of puts their creative input in, and uh, then we just sort of tweak it, the three of us. Very good idea, Sam. But yeah. So, uh, so we don't right. have time for my quiz question, so I'll just tell you that only one team in the history of the Champions League or European Cup from France has won it, and that was Marseille in 92-93. So PSG will um, become only the second. I, actually, Sam, I wish you'd ask because I knew that. Yeah, sure you did, Marseille. <laughs> great bully great base in Marseille. All right, guys, uh, that's all the time we have today on Over the Ball. I'd like to thank my, uh, my cohorts here, Grail Hallett and Sam Griswold, and our guest today on uh, OTB, who's done a, a, just a great job over at MLS, getting everything ready this year, uh, Jeff Vegas. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Uh, we'll talk to you next time, everybody, on OTB.